The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the Monkfish Was Fine edition. It's Wednesday, May 2nd. 2018. On today's show, Wild Wild Country is a wild, wild documentary on Netflix. You've probably been word of mouth toward it already, but if not, uh, we're going to talk about it. It tells the improbable story of the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh as they set themselves up out in Oregon. And then comedians either kill or bomb, which you think Michelle Wolf did at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, says a lot about you and uh, your positioning in 2018. And finally, what is up with YouTube? We ask Slate's own Justin Peters. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hello. And uh, of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hi, Dana. Hey, Steven. Wild Wild Country is a six-part documentary on Netflix. It's a deep dive back into the story of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, the Indian guru and spiritual leader, or whatever you want to call him, cult leader, fraud, who created his own religion, then relocated his rapidly growing commune to the middle of rural Oregon. There, he not only purchased outright 64,000-acre parcel of land to create his own self-sufficient city-state, but began to take over the local political apparatus. What begins as a somewhat simple, actually quite complex in many ways, land-use dispute grows into a truly astonishing tale of enlightenment, free love, palace intrigue, human frailty, double-dealing, even poisoning, and finally, the nature of power itself. It's directed by Chapman and McLean Way. It's on Netflix, as I said. And the voice we're going to hear on this clip is uh, that of Ma Anand Sheila, the... um, Really, the uh, her title was secretary to Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, but that doesn't really capture it. She's the woman who more or less set up and managed his empire. Take a listen. 63,000 acres. They told me, look as far as you can see, that everything you can see belonged to you. It was so clear. We arrived at the promised land. In northeastern Oregon, the followers of an Indian guru are now only a vote away from establishing and controlling Oregon's newest city. We decided to have self-government. 150 U.S. citizens can create their own city. This provision, it's a fundamental right. 154 registered voters at the ranch went to the polls and voted unanimously to incorporate Rajneeshpuram as a city. Julia, let me turn to you first. Uh, this is um, this is quite an astonishing um, retelling of this story that meant, I have to say, very. I was fully awake adult during the time all this went down. I paid almost no attention to it. It was very hazy in my mind, just a bunch of weirdos out in the hills of Oregon. Um, but uh, every minute of this, I think, is riveting. What did you What did you make of it? I did not find every minute of this riveting. I had a lot of questions about this documentary that I'm so eager to ask you guys. It is a fascinating story. It touches on so many interesting cultural currents in America then versus now. It touches on class because the people who are drawn to the commune are largely more affluent and educated than the rural uh, white 
people who object to the arrival of this polyglot uh bunch of sex-loving hippies that arrive in their community. Um, the class issues are further complicated when the community invites the homeless people from all of the country over to join them in order to boost their numbers and uh, for, have further influence in local elections. It is about, sort of about religion and spirituality and what uh, an ecstatic community can offer people who are uh, looking to escape the constraints of daily life. Um, It is about land use. It is about local government. It is a a kind of procedural about an FBI investigation. There are acts of terrorism. There are acts of poisoning. There is the fundamental question of charisma and what is it and what causes people to heed the direction of others. Like, what a fascinating stew. Also, what a visually stunning, fascinating stew. Like, great work, cult-like religious group uh, getting all of your followers to wear hues of red, orange, and pink for the entirety of your time. Like, that makes for some very cinematic uh, footage as the, like, red velour-clad hippies, like, zombie-like, start slowly infiltrating the town. But I think this documentary has a serious case of Netflixitis. It is too long, and it apes the quality of documentaries that just let the subject speak for themselves and try to let you marinate in a pleasant stew of ambiguity where you see uh, the the potential different viewpoints on this community and this conflict from all different sides. It's admirably open to many different sides. But after spending more than six hours with it, because these episodes are each a little bit longer than an hour, I think, um, I wanted more of an answer. It tells you so many interesting things, but it never answers the fucking question of like, what was happening at this community? And I think the answer is probably some things that were very good for many people in their lives and some other things that were very bad for many people in their lives. And to what degree were the bad acts uh, undertaken, the act of this charismatic deputy, Ma Sheila, or endorsed by the broader community? It seems deeply incurious about the answers to those questions in a manner that I found super fucking frustrating after I spent six hours of my time watching it. Yeah, I agree. It's both too long and not long enough. I mean, it's it's too long given the amount of interviewees they have and material they have to cover. But there are so many really basic questions that go unanswered that it reminded me of. I mean, it just it seemed almost although the archival work is really impressive and they found a lot of amazing old news reports and i mean they had some good archivists working with them or or you know, editors but we don't really understand let's get to some of the the things that we don't understand at the end of those 6 hours i actually don't understand what bhagwan sri ranish's belief system is or how he got his followers to become these red clad twirling-eyed zombies i mean there's just very very little time spent on the, the actual practical application of whatever his beliefs are. And I think a big, big part of that is that they're very myopic in who they interview. There's a whole lot of interviews with Mahanand Sheila, the woman whose voice we heard, who, yes, is a fascinating, possibly sociopathic person. We can get into some of the crazy stories that come out about her over the course of the documentary. And uh, a few other previous acolytes who were really in the inner circle, like this Australian woman, Ma Shanti B, uh, who was also very closely involved in the, the inner circle of of, um, the, of Rajneesh himself and wound up, like Ma Nanshila, spending some time in prison for crimes that she committed on his behalf. And then this, this guy, this older man who was basically sort of the lawyer or a lawyer anyway, who 
was both a member of the cult and also represented the Bhagwan. And so they're all, they may not still be true believers, but they all still have sort of a, a twirly-eyed, slightly uh, psycho quality when they talk about the Rajneesh. So, that he, so in other words, no one is really interviewed from that group, to, who to me seems to have any sort of rational distance from it and can actually say, oh, look, this is how he worked on people. This is the kind of people that he attracted mm-hmm. into the cult. And when you do some further reading, as we did for this segment, that's background on the cult that doesn't have to do directly with this documentary, there's so much that was left out about, you know, the way that sex was used to break down people's defenses and that that no children were allowed. You could not bear a child in this Oregon location of this cult. It was against the rules. You had to have an abortion or leave the facilities. You could only bring a child that if you already had one, which one of these people, the Australian woman did. So there's no talk about that, sort of how children were treated on the commune or educated or anything like that. I just had no sense of like how daily life was run. Anyway, Mm. so by the end of these six hours, I both couldn't stop watching because I actually wanted to hear what happened in this historical story and was almost heckling the television because I was so frustrated at the amateurishness of the storytelling. Mm, that's interesting. I, mean, I, I kind of loved it uh, throughout. I mean, a cu- couple things. One is that, yes, absolutely. It appears as though when you do secondary reading on this, it was way more totalitarian uh, and sinister than the documentary really indicates or explores uh and possibly criminal or definitely criminal um but what here's what i here's what i liked about it and and what drew me to it is that they get at what was i think unique about this community which is it somehow combined you know i mean the classic you know sort of golden age of american cults was the 1970s when the sort of ego structure of the whole country was breaking down and, you know, the culture of narcissism, one, you know, it was quite general, but one acute manifestation of it was, you know, people going in search of uh, a sort of total worldview and a total checkout uh, of, of, of you know, modernity, really. But um, what's what's so unique about this is that it has some of that and its origins are clearly in the 60s or 70s, but it's completely united with and combined with the 80s and the decade of greed. So Bhagwan Tree is compl- uh, Rajneesh is completely open about his materialism, uh, uh, completely open to the idea that science is uh, an advance in human well-being and knowledge. Um, he's he's uh, completely in tune with the idea that that uh, uh, of the 80s that that uh, y- you should accumulate wealth and you should flaunt it. So he he it was brilliant because he both appealed to what was kind of the basic structure of the worldview of the public at large in the 80s, while also preventing anyone from ever discovering that he had secret Rolls Royces and was a complete hypocrite. I mean, there was no kind of ethic of poverty at all over this. And so what's the, the first thing that I find so totally compelling about the documentary is the extent to which these are not the people surrounding him. Uh, and by and large, it, it, I mean, given all the archival footage, right, you see thousands of people passing through this cult. Um, at least, and by and large, they do not seem like weak egoed or people whose ego structure has somehow broken down. Um, and nor do they seem as if they're unattractive and therefore refuges, you know, taking refuge from a world in which they couldn't possibly succeed. Those qualities are especially acute among these three or four people who form the center of it. And they aren't they aren't um, chosen randomly. They were really like the electrons around the nucleus that was Bhagwan himself, who, like all such figures, you know, is both the mastermind but a kind of vacuous 
you know, half presence in a way. And then, and then to me, the thing that just makes this a tour de force is that, you know, it's the rare documentary at its center that has a, a character who's, who actually is as compelling as any character I think I've encountered in fiction. I mean, Ma Anand Sheila is ruthless, charming, uh, quite beautiful, um, super articulate, cunning, um, totally manipulative, in one sense self-serving, in another sense probably deeply in love, uh, you know, uh, with the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. I mean, she is such an astonishing portrait in in human complexity that I could have watched another six hours of this. But like, I mean, you're right that the question of those specific people, three of the four of whom don't really question what happened like the movie doesn't seem curious about their lack of curiosity yes like I the, totally the movie agree. you have described that is fundamentally about that question steve i would love to see that movie but this movie is just like it has it has in itself the quality of the like ecstatic twirling in the community like the movie itself seems a little bit in love or the series with the community and it seems like the movie wants to surround itself with these bright cinnamon colors and just stand in the middle of a room and like twirl wildly and spin it all around and be like, whoa, this is so crazy. Life, man, what a trip. Like that seems to be the amount of intellectual rigor that is that is uh, present in what has been made here. And it just they just don't seem curious about the actually interesting questions. They, they seem to constantly, uh, the filmmakers just be trying to to put forth crazy juxtapositions and be like, whoa, are all these Oregonians just racist? But maybe they were getting a bioterror attack perpetrated upon them by this uh, hippie community. But maybe this hippie community was so freeing. But maybe it was run by a megalomaniac. Like, <laughs> I agree. Just, and that dude like, voice is perfect. There's something really young feeling about the approach to this. I feel like a, a, a film professor needed to come in and say, okay, you're making a documentary, right? So you need to answer this question, this question, this question, give some context for this. You know, this is more of an aesthetic detail, but I have to say that the music in Wild Wild Country also drove me nuts. Not the, the theme song by Bill Callahan, which is excellent, but just the ambient constant thrumming music making you know how you were supposed to feel which the music actually it was scored by one of the uh, the other way brothers i felt like somebody needed to give notes to this thing yeah like the moral the moral level of this movie is whoa no i think you're wrong i mean i think the 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 among the most startling things in this documentary are the is the degree to which one can set up one's own uh utopian community within the legal you know framework of the United States beginning with the Constitution. And they understood this and they exploited it quite brilliantly. And I think the ambiguity that the filmmakers are getting at is, isn't this sort of what this country is about, right? We leave people alone. We leave them to make their own ideal communities. Um, And as something like this is unfolding, it's unclear whether these people are completely fulfilled and self-fulfilling creatures and there was a way in which from the outside you could conclude that they were and they want and the filmmakers i think quite cannily are exploiting that confusion when something like this unfolds in real time they're not trying to tell it with the benefit of hindsight uh 
which would make it pat in a way. What's far more disorienting uh, about this story is the extent to which they created out of nothing a beautifully irrigated Eden, you know, oasis in the middle of a kind of, you know, otherwise underutilized, um, half abandoned Oregon. And within it, they were in fact supplying most of their own needs. They do in fact look like quite healthy, fulfilled people. Now, I'm not saying they were, clearly they were, there was a absolute, you know, dark hole in the heart of all of this apparently um but i think it's much more effective instead of having the kind of classic and at this point very boring trope of someone saying you know i you know i came from like you know this was a surrogate family i mean all of the cliches like i came from a terrible family this was a surrogate family yes they broke me down then they built me back up again and only later did i realize this was an orwellian nightmare and i came free of it and gosh isn't it horrible and by the way he was uh, you know, uh, you know, the whole thing was led by a cult of personality thief or whatever. I've seen that. We've all seen that. We've seen that since the nineteen goddamn seventies. I thought this was far more tantalizing and weird for making you think that it's possible these people were what they said they were. Um, and furthermore, that that was something deep. There was something deeply American about that, which they themselves said, right? I mean, that was that was kind of manipulative and cynical of them, but they were also sort of onto something. I mean, I, I anyway, I, I was completely taken. I mean, I dare you to tell people not to watch this. No, I told you guys to watch it. I mean, in fact, I had watched this well before we talked about doing it on the show, and uh, and I was the one who said who told you you had to watch all six hours of it, which I do think is true. It's sort of strange to simultaneously say this drives me crazy, and I was dying to see the next episode. But I think for that reason, yeah, I would send people to it. It's an incredible story that you probably don't know about, even if you did, Steve. Even if you were, you know, cognizant of of, of news events during that time, it could have passed you by. I still find the way that it's told to be strangely myopic and leaving out all kinds of important I don't even yeah. know why they all wore red it was never explained I, I don't think it's fair to suggest that Dana's in my critiques or that we wish the movie was a more didactic movie that scolded the cult for being bad like uh, that's definitely not what I want the strength of this movie is that it's really open to the really fascinating arguments for and against this community and I think there are really good arguments for it like the legal argument that the constitution basically supported everything they were doing seems right that the neighbors were motivated by racism and and nimbyism and xenophobia seems right there the movie touches on but never fully explores what it was like to be queer or a person of color in the community um Anshila is Indian but we see occasional interviews with people of all sorts of different races who who kind of took refuge in this community in the in the mostly white rural hills of Oregon. Like it's clear that the community offered something real to a lot of people who weren't finding it elsewhere at that time. Like I'm not, I don't want to watch something that simplifies these issues. I found it maddening that the extraordinary nuance and complexity and the real ability to make arguments on both sides of a lot of the issues here. I just wish someone with a more sophisticated sensibility was directing that inquiry. Mm. All right. Well, it's Wild Wild Country on Netflix. Uh, we're all, I think, telling you to watch it, but we disagree on what your experience of it may be. So you got to come and settle it for us. Facebook.com slash Culture Fest, which we are still on. All right. Uh, moving on. The entire thing has been a witch hunt. I've seen the tweet about tapes. Lordy, I hope there are tapes. The president is not against immigration. Alternative facts. I guess it's kind of like we're living in the twilight zone. 
when the news changes quickly. And Washington feels like a circus. We're here to help you make sense of it all. I'm Emily Bazelon. I'm David Plotz. And I'm John Dickerson. We're the co-hosts of the Political Gap Fest. The essential weekly political news podcast from Slate. Subscribe to the Political Gab Fest to stay up on the latest news from Washington. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, now is the uh, portion of our show that we devote to business. Uh, Julia, I'm sure we have some. Uh, What do you got? Well, yes, Steve. One piece of business is that you're planning to abduct us all. A reminder about our (laughs) secret summer getaway on June 2nd at a super secret location in Rensselaer County, New York at 3 p.m. Again, Saturday, June 2nd. Go to slate.com slash live and buy tickets. If you've ever wanted Steve to take you away to enjoy some of the local delights that he frequently tells us about on the show, uh, get a ticket and come to Rensselaer County. Mm-hmm. You will actually learn the location a few days before the event. It will be easily accessible right. by car with parking on site. Uh, again, that's slate.com slash live for the show at 3 p.m. on Saturday, June 2nd at the Super Secret location. Yes, and can I just jump in here and say that I promise to leave your ego structure mostly intact. <laughs> All right, fair enough, fair enough. Also, Steve, where what county is the capital of New York in? Uh, it turns out that for some completely obscure, counterintuitive, and really, I think, sort of sinister reason, Albany, the city of Albany, is in Albany County. Ah, I mean, what a, what a double fake out that is. It's not in Rensselaer County, which is where the city of Troy is, with which I've fallen in love recently. Um, love that place. But anyway, um, we're going to be in Rensselaer County. So if you were concerned that we might be taking you to Albany, we definitely now are not you can rule out Albany because the location is in Rensselaer County, and Albany, contrary to our prior statements, is not. We just lost so many upstate listeners. They know none of this is upstate, Dana. That's the other thing. Upstate is further <laughs> up than all of this, according to half of Twitter. Uh, Dana, I feel like you have some business, too, to share. I had a few small business things. Um, two of them are corrections uh, from my from my endorsement last week. So uh, in my attempt to reach out to Toronto after the van incident, the terrorism incident that they had last, last week, I made two mistakes. One of them is about something sad and one of them is about something happy. So I'll start with the happy one first. Uh, my endorsement was this band called Moscow Apartment. And uh, and I was just recommending their, um, their wonderful, folky, melodic music. And I heard from Moscow Apartment afterwards. And uh, I had referred to them as, as very young women. I said they seemed to be in their mid, early to mid 20s. And they're actually teenagers. They're teenagers who met in a youth chorus, 15 and 16 years old. So, and they now follow me on Twitter. So, hello, Moscow Apartment. You are even more amazing than I thought to be accomplishing what you're accomplishing at your age. And I hope people will listen to your music. And the less happy note comes from a note that I got from a listener, Tessa Liam, who thought that it was worth mentioning that though it is true that the van incident that happened last week is the worst act of terrorism in Canada in 30 years, there was, in fact, another mass killing just one year ago in January of 2017, in which six worshippers were killed at a mosque in Quebec City. She says this event has not gotten much coverage because of that. And for many other reasons, it seems important for it to be acknowledged. So thank you, Tessa, for writing in about that. Indeed. And you have one more too, right? Yes, I have one more announcement um, that is, again, a happy one. This is an event that I'm doing this coming weekend on Sunday, May 6th in in Brooklyn. And uh, I just wanted to invite anyone in the New York area to come if they want to. It's called Critical Drinking. This is actually, I hope, an ongoing tradition. It's something that uh, that A.O. Scott just started in his local bar, Irv's, where this one is going to happen to. Uh, and it's basically a bunch of critics getting together 
we have cocktails that are named after each one and we get together and play drinking games and trivia with the audience and essentially talk about criticism while getting slightly buzzed. It was really fun last time. And then one of the participants, Alyssa Wilkinson, who is the movie critic for Vox.com, had the wonderful idea that we should put together an all-woman critics edition of Critical Drinking. So it will be me, Emily Nussbaum, who of course writes on TV for The New Yorker, Sonia Soraya, who is the new TV critic for Vanity Fair, uh, Alyssa Wilkinson, who will be hosting us, the Vox critic. So again, it's called Critical Drinking. It's at Irv's Bar, E-R-V-S, in Prospect Leffert Gardens near the Q train. And uh, yeah, you can come to my Twitter feed if you want to hear more because I've been sort of advertising it daily. Critical drinking. All right. Uh, I also want to tell our listeners about Slate Plus today. We are stealing the Political Gab Fest's latest Slate Plus segment, which actually built upon our Slate Plus segment last week. Last week, we answered a listener question, which item of culture, when someone tells you they love it, makes you love them? Uh, the Political Gab Fest enjoyed our segment, did their own segment on the same subject, and then one-upped it with what item of culture, when someone tells you they love it, makes you hate, suspect, or deeply uh, disrespect them. <laughs> and so we will do the negative flip side of our previous Slate Plus segment. Uh, to hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a great way to support the work that we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. Comedian Michelle Wolf was asked to do the roast portion of the White House Correspondents' Dinner this year, with Trump not in attendance but in front of White House and congressional staff, uh, and of course the D.C. press corps. She did what she exactly what she was asked to do, which is to violate the line between good and poor taste while telling a crowd of mostly self-serving bores and tuxes the truth about themselves. Now people are complaining she crossed the line, especially when she told a set of jokes about White House spokesperson Sarah Huckabee Sanders who was sitting there right next to her uncomfortably on the dais. Uh, Dana, let me start with you. I, I, you know, I just, just to set the table here a little bit, I, I mean, can you believe that we were actually able to once do a segment on this show about whether or not women were funny? We did not do a segment with the premise, are women funny? We did a segment about the fact that Vanity Fair had ludicrously allowed yeah. Christopher Hitchens to right. Hitchens publish an did, essay arguing that, that they weren't. Even, right, no, but I mean, just the idea that you could even have published an article like that and then have any kind of a conversation about it is so, like the evolution beyond that is, is I think, worth noting. Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, I might say that there's a, a, a line could be drawn between, you know, debates about, oh, are women allowed to enter into the precious realm of comedy that belongs to men? And the fact that it happens to be the woman at the White House Correspondents' Dinner who is shamed and disowned by the White House Correspondents' Association sure. for going too far, when just last year there was a male comic who apparently said all kinds of singeing things. There was no one from the Trump administration present last year, but it's hard to imagine that person being called out in the same way. And I think the fact that she's a woman completely plays into this, but we can get into that. I mean, to be fair, also Stephen Colbert, there was like an extremely similar round of aggrieved tutting when Stephen Colbert basically called out George Bush for overseeing a pointless war and embroiling the world in uh, increased violence and terror. Yeah, the Colbert the Colbert moment is the most analogous, except for the fact that the White House Correspondents Association itself, who invited the comedian and paid their salary, didn't subsequently disown them. And that's the moment of this 
kind of mm-hmm. mini scandal that actually seems important to me. I mean, as, as you guys know, I generally stay offline and off Twitter on the weekends. So I wasn't really aware of this flap about Michelle Wolf until it was well into outrage cycle number one, which was just simply the reactions the day after the dinner. And uh, I remember logging on Twitter on Sunday, like a lot of people seeing that and just thinking like, oh, I'm going away till this blows over. Next thing I heard about it, which was, I guess, late that night, when the White House Correspondents Association wrote that pusillanimous memo, essentially distancing themselves from her and acting like, oh, we're so incredibly shocked that the entertainer who will not be named said these inappropriate things. Suddenly, I was re-stoked into absolute fury about it. And to tell you the truth, I spent the whole day yesterday (laughs) pacing around muttering about this. I mean, do they realize, and this is only about the letter right now, not about the jokes themselves, what an incredibly stupid move that was and how that was just rolling over for the Trump administration. I mean, on the same night that Michelle Wolf is making these jokes that she was hired to make about the press corps and about the administration, Donald Trump, who refuses to attend, is just whipping up a campaign rally with all kinds of anti-press rhetoric. There was some guy screaming at the press pen at that at that rally, calling the journalists in the pen filth and degenerates. And uh, and the very next day, you know, Trump is able to get to use this White House Correspondents Association's memo as part of his, you know, arsenal in getting online and just rallying his base against the free press. I mean, it's to me, it's absolutely chilling that a, an organization that's supposed to represent the First Amendment and some sort of, you mm-hmm. know, some sort of um, mm-hmm. satiric clash, right? It may be symbolic. Maybe we want to cancel the dinner altogether going forward. That's fine. But given the amount of danger that the First Amendment and the free press is in right now, direct danger that <laughs> from the administration, the idea that they would not stand behind their comic and just, I mean, for God's sake, just issue a boilerplate press release. I mean, Margaret Talov, who's the head of the association who threw the dinner and who was the author of this memo, could even have distanced herself personally and said, I myself was offended by the comic's words. However, we stand behind her because, right? I mean, just say some First Amendment boilerplate mm-hmm. bullshit. Right. Shut up about it for 24 <laughs> hours and it'll blow over and they'll be whining about something else. But no, we have to hand a little gift-wrapped present to Donald mm-hmm. Trump. It makes me sick. Right. Right, and not only to Donald Trump, but to the, to, to, you know, to the whole premise that, uh, you know, liberal elite culture is somehow um, you know, derisively condescending on an unending basis to these poor victims known as the conservatives or white America or whatever you want to say. But Julia, but let's. Uh, uh, I want to get your opinion on all of the above, but I first want to hear what you thought of the routine as a routine. Oh well, I mean, I think there's like a broader context here, which is that it's harder and harder to get super big name people to do this event. It's harder to do it in the Trump era because it's such a fraught event and so many people are skipping it and it's uh, in some ways suggests a false comedy between the press and the administration given the administration's attacks upon the free press. Um, Like, I didn't think it was that funny, but I don't think it was like inappropriate. And I think her manner of comedy is um, bald and crass rather than, I mean, the Stephen Colbert routine, if you go back and watch it, it's very pointed and very mean and yet has that Stephen Colbert tap dancing in a tuxedo kind of wry dexterous politesse, even as it's vicious. And her style is aggressive and bald and flat out. Um, and, you know, not like I, I just watching that was not like, oh, I'm dying to see the rest of her comedy, particularly. Um, 
but it's a tough gig. And I've like basically never watched a set from the White House Correspondents' Dinner and thought, what a brilliant comic. Can't wait to see all of their work. So I don't think the fact that I didn't personally love the comedy is has bearing here. I do think that the the kind of message and critique and subtext of the routine was great. Like that's that's part of what you're supposed to do is is come roast the dynamic in the room. And I mean there was a lot of tut tutting in particular about the jokes she made about some of the women in the administration. Um and in particular some tutting that she had been attacking Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who did look quite uncomfortable sitting next to her on the dais. Like Good. She, she had not. I'm I'm not. Yes. Sure. Fine. But like didn't was unable to to perform the performance that is typically been required in that room for years upon years, which is you chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. Ha 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 ha. They're making fun of me. Like that's the that's the gambit. It's a stupid gambit. And that's a stupid event, which we can talk about in a moment. But Sarah Huckabee Sanders was unable to enact the typical ha-ha-ha-ness of it. And not only when she was being mocked, but apparently there was an an award presented earlier to some reporters who had covered some aspect of the Russia story. There was a standing ovation and Sarah Huckabee Sanders didn't stand. I mean, she was not there supporting the free press. In general, in the way she performs her job, she's not particularly supportive of the free press. Obviously, press secretaries jobs are to represent the administration throughout, but there's typically been a little bit more regard or at least performance of regard for the process and how it usually goes than there is in her performance of the job. So like, I think that there was a baldness and crassness to her style of comedy that is part of what set off the tripwires here. I think you're right, Dana, that that style of comedy from a woman is probably jarring to some of the, the pearl clutchers in this scenario. And I agree that the a uh, person running the White House Correspondents' Dinner should not have issued that statement. It was ludicrous. The idea that this event matters at all or has anything to do with the actual state of the free press is also ludicrous. So I went to the White House Correspondents' Dinner once when we were still corporate siblings with the Washington Post, which at that point was a big participant. And um, occasionally Slate would have a table along their flotilla of tables. Um, we don't go anymore And when I went, it's just like the thing about the event has very little to do with the scholarships, which, as I think Clara Jeffrey, the editor of Mother Jones, pointed out on Twitter, they give out an extremely paltry amount of money to the student journalists who are awarded at this event when compared with the amount of money that's spent on putting the event on itself, on all the entertainer fees, on all the after parties that the different publications throw. Um, But this is essentially an event for advertisers like People on the sales teams of publications bring all their advertisers to the nerd prom and it's like a party that you can build an ad package around. Like it's it's it, the stuff happening on stage at the event has like no content. It's it's pointless. It's all just like a show. It's like the Vanity Fair's Oscar party. It's like branding and, oh, you should advertise in blah, blah, blah publication because it's at the center of whatever the it's at the beating heart of washington it's got all the pulse like it's it, it's 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 all marketing and and there is no substance to it and it is not a sincere and sober place where the values of journalism are recognized or ever has been so the idea that anybody cares about any of this like i just thought it would blow over because this whole event is so dumb 
I don't care. It's it's a symbolic event that has a certain symbolic meaning that Trump was able to very cannily play to his supporters that the D.C. elites and the entire press and what they are characterizing as the left rolled over because Sarah Huckabee Sanders went boo-hoo about her eye makeup. I mean, mm-hmm. essentially, we played that into their hands and there was absolutely no need right. to do it. And it made me really scared for the elections to come and for what the Democrats are going to do. Like, we we need to fight as if this stuff matters because they would be happy to take that apology and turn it into whatever they want. Right. Well, I mean, so many things. One is that uh, to begin with, the pearl clutching is so revolting because it's on behalf of, or it's being done by people who defend the single most offensive person uh, to ever be president, or in my estimation, to ever enter public life. I mean, the number of utterly degrading and openly degrading things that their president, you know, has said uh, in the course of becoming president and since occupying the office. I mean, it just it it is completely destroying the dignity of the United States and of the Oval Office um, and to remain silent on that but then all of a sudden have a seizure when uh, this woman says what I think are relatively innocuous jibes uh, is just is revolting and 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 to add to that the very same sort of people who if the roles were at all reversed would be saying snowflake 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 out on Twitter I mean the the utter sensitivity of these people, which I think is highly performative, and it's horrible either way, but I think it's even more cynical because it's highly performative. This umbrage Olympics that they're that they're um, you know uh, entering into every day, compared to the kind of rhetoric they use when anybody is even arguably no platformed by a liberal anywhere in the known universe in any way, shape, or form, they're disgusting. I mean, to me, they're utter low lives. But but. Um, on top of that, I thought she was very funny, and I think she just has a very different comedic style. It's it's jagged uh, and pitiless, and what I liked about it, and what I think she liked about it, and you could see her liking about it while she delivered it, was... I'm actually going to go well beyond. Like, I refuse to be part of the kabuki at all. You know, you're all pretending that this is a serious defense of the First Amendment on behalf of young aspiring journalists whose uh, uh, scholarships we're going to pay into, and what this really is 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 it just another hideous uh, um, District of Columbia mask underneath which there's a self-serving uh, ness all the way down to the core. And I'm supposed to, in a weird way, be part of it. Like I, the comedian, the roaster, is supposed to kind of play a role in this, which is like, I'm gonna, I'm supposed to be Lear's fool who who kind of needles you and kind of pushes you, but that's just to make it seem as though we're not completely uh, incestuous uh, um, with one another or it's not a totally hermetic universe. Like we can hear these things. And she was like, ah, fuck that. I'm gonna hold up a mirror. and And the fact that she stuck the landing with a non-joke at the end, which is um, there's still no drinkable water in Flint. I mean, she was telling you exactly what she was doing. And I thought I thought the Masha Gessen piece in The New Yorker was very astute about this, you know, that this was meant to be in some ways unfunny and awkward, and it wasn't supposed to have an ounce of politesse or meta to it. Um, and it was supposed to go right up the fucking asses of the people in that room. And I, I think she's a hero for having uh, having done that. The fact is that she was hired to go in there and do a roast. She did a really savage roast. The press release bragging about how great a hire she was a few months ago whenever she got the job said, you know, Michelle Wolf is a feminist and she takes no prisoners and she's the right voice for our time because, you know, she's not afraid to speak truth to power or something like that. Then she goes and does exactly that and everybody falls to the floor in a performative mm-hmm. faint. I thought she did a fantastic job. I laughed 
my ass off and I loved the nerve cracking silence that greeted uh, the middle portion of her presentation. Anyway, come to facebook.com slash culturefest. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm right. Uh, and we'll discuss it there further. All right, moving on. All right. So since I find so much of what uh, comprises our next segment so mystifying, I'm going to hand it very quickly over to Sleek contributor Justin Peters. But let me begin by saying I've got uh, Justin, a 15-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old daughter, and virtually every time they're lost in some device and I ask them what they're doing, they say they're watching YouTube. I'm proud to say that I not only did not know who Logan Paul was, I wasn't even really aware of the word vlogger. And most of what's going on on YouTube is a total alien universe to me. You've now done a pop-up blog for Slate explaining to fogies like me what exactly is going on on YouTube, for which I'm incredibly grateful. Justin Peters, welcome to the show. Uh, it's good to be here. And it's fogies like me, too. I, before delving into YouTube uh, for uh, just over two weeks, um, I had heard the name Logan Paul, but that was only in connection with him showing a literal dead body on his one of his vlogs and being internationally reviled because of it. So all I knew of him is this is the crazy-eyed kid who went into a Japanese forest, stumbled across a dead body hanging from a tree, and thought it was a good idea to film it, uh, to linger on it, and to upload that video to his audience of literally tens of millions of adolescents, preteens, and teenagers across the world. Um, I wish I could say there's so much more to Logan Paul than that. Uh, there really isn't that much more to Logan Paul than that. He is a um, obnoxious 23-year-old who earns millions and millions of dollars doing daily vlogs in which he does Nothing really resembling typical entertainment, but kids love him, and he's rich because of it. And basically, that's YouTube. Uh, kids love it. People are getting rich because of it. Uh, I grew up watching network television. I didn't really understand it when I got started with the blog. I understand it a little bit better now, but, you know, I'm still, there's still corners of it that completely mystify me. Reading your post, you cover so many different areas of YouTube. You talk about Logan Paul, a, a vlogger, influencer, wealthy YouTube celebrity. You talk about the time the kids spend on YouTube and some of the content aimed at them. You talk about the the quiet, sincere videos of elevator hobbyists who just film all the elevators they ever get in and get out of and just point their cameras lovingly at the buttons. You talk about the phenomenon of science videos on YouTube and how they tend to favor uh, cool-ass stunts with changing materials rather than uh, serious inquiries into hypothesis, experiment, and conclusion. Uh, what else? You talk about yodeling kids in Walmart. You try to find the least uh, successful YouTube video, the least viral YouTube video of all time, which is indelible. I was unable to check out last night how many views that video now has. <laughs> I think you initially noted that it racked up 129 views since 2005, um, by your precise metrics, making it the least viewed video ever. Um, how many does it have now? Last I checked, which was over a week ago, it was up to 5,000. Oh, shit, we ruined it. I know. Now it's just a boring video with no dis 
distinction, uh, no, nothing distinctive about it. Except your selection of it as least viral video ever. Yeah. Um, and my favorite piece maybe was was about the phenomenon of how-to videos on YouTube. I did once actually use a YouTube how-to video to rewire a lamp, which was a moment of great triumph. And you spend an entire day listening to people give you advice about how to get out of bed, shower, write an article, etc. Um one thing that struck me in watching, I don't know, the 40 or so videos you collected or linked to or featured in these pieces um, was this sense of incredible disorientation when I started any of them. Like I didn't know what I was going to get. I didn't know what kind of viewing experience I was in for. I didn't understand the like language or the world or what kind of channel I was in. And I found that very frustrating. Like I found myself very alienated by the lack of a comfortable form that I was familiar with that I knew would unfurl once I hit play. Some of the science videos had like 20 minutes. That's long. You didn't link to those ones, but like a four minute wind up. And some of them just like exploded things immediately. And some of them, um, just the pacing is so varied. There, It's not like turning on network television and being like, well, I'm either going to get a drama and it will be an hour or a comedy and it will be a half hour. Perhaps it will be a news program. Um, and I had this moment where I was like, is this what people think of podcasts? Like, is YouTube just the podcasting of video? It's this gigantic world of content that the set of people who love it really love it and they know how to read it and they know how to say, okay, well, at times or an NPR show is going to be a little bit like this and a Gimlet show is going to be a little bit like that or maybe I'm way over here and kind of like the talk radio shock jockey version. Like, there are kind of channels and streams within the morass of podcasting you use different technology than you would typically typically use for audio to get it like podcasting is impenetrable to people who don't know what it is and it's sort of formless and I was like oh I get YouTube YouTube is just podcasting for the eyes it's like this whole new world of media with no rules and you have to kind of find your own little stream within it to surf otherwise you'll be lost is that a fair metaphor I think that's pretty fair um I do sort of think that if you listen to terrestrial radio at sort of any point during your life, uh, the AM dial, um, then you can count yourself as roughly familiar with podcasts. That doesn't sort of exist between YouTube and, and television, right? You know, watching television, watching movies, you know, doesn't necessarily prepare you for um sort of becoming comfortable with YouTube or understanding the format. And I came to really sort of equate it more to, to home videos. Um, the videos that, you know, back in the eighties when, you know, people had those big bulky camcorders that, you know, people's parents would use to film uh, Thanksgiving dinner or, you know, vacations or whatnot. That, to me, is the sort of video artifact that is most similar to YouTube. Very sort of artless um, use of these devices that are also used professionally in a completely different context. Minimal artifice, minimal sort of training, very little interest in what makes a technically good video. And in fact, I think you know, the more polished that your video becomes on YouTube, sometimes an overpolished video is um, it works against it. Uh, people really respond um, to very simple stuff. 
uh, turning on the camera. It doesn't even need to be a good camera. Looking at it, speaking directly to um, the audience. But really, it's a question of um, am I speaking sort of from the heart about something that I, the videographer, am passionate about? And am I speaking to a community of people who feel similarly about this? And, you know, that can be anything from, you know, elevators. One of my favorite pieces that I wrote for the blog, as you sort of mentioned, was the piece about uh, elevator enthusiasts around the world. And there's thousands of these people who literally just film themselves going on elevators, uh, talking about the elevator, not talking about the elevator, riding the elevator. Um, it's one of the most soothing sort of like things. It bears no resemblance to um, any traditional form of entertainment media. Um, but there's a huge audience from it. I got so many emails from people thanking me for writing about uh, the elevator world. And this one woman was like, you know what um, is even better than elevator YouTube? Toilet YouTube. Uh, and I'm like, well, you know, maybe, maybe for the next, uh, for the next blog. <laughs> oh my gosh! I mean, Dana and Steve, you guys both have YouTube age kids. Are you like, what's wrong with Julia and her stupid questions about YouTube? Because my child slash children watch YouTube all the time, and it is, it is like obvious to me what YouTube is. Well, I mean, when you were talking about whether it's analogous to the podcast world and that there must be people who can navigate their way within it, I kind of feel like my daughter, who's 12 now, is is one of those people. You know, she has some YouTube celebrities she follows, but they're not vacuous Logan Pauls. I mean, they, they may have their, their problems. I haven't seen every one of their videos, but they tend to be people who have more professionally produced sort of shows that are trying to be in some ways like something that you would see on TV or at least like a web series like High Maintenance or something that sort of delivers a consistent product. I'm thinking in particular of Liza Koshy, who's this YouTube comic, um, who's extremely goofy, kind of a physical comedian. She's a dancer, too. I think she's really great. Her, her comedy is a little bit sort of grating and maybe more aimed at preteen girls than at me. But she's really good at what she does. And when I look over my daughter's shoulder and see her watching Wednesdays with Liza, this show in which Liza Koshy does things like go into Walmart and make trouble or, you know, whatever, skateboard to some weird place and kind of um, put on her own improvised show, I think this girl is going to end up on Saturday Night Live or get some kind of, you know, she seems like she's a sort of a, a breakout star waiting to happen. And that's very different from the Logan Pauls of the world and the people that Justin seemed drawn to to falling down YouTube holes of in his in his series, who are more just in what you call performative sociopaths, right? <laughs> I mean, people who just are sort of taking their, you know, whatever their particular pathology is and, and monetizing it on YouTube. So that's like a, a different world is, is I think, young pro- professional style performance who are trying to break through. I just I think this is just a you know fascinating new chapter in the history of American narcissism. I mean there's it's kind of and it's two sides of a narcissistic coin. On one side, people seem less especially young people seem less eager to give over some of themselves to an exalted figure like a movie or a rock star. I mean there's some huge exceptions to that, but by and large the golden era of passively viewing video in which which features someone who you acknowledge as as heroic you know um and kind of above and beyond you i mean the, the people want to sort of you know the, the the low production values are meant to have the, the youtube video mimic a peer-to-peer experience right i mean it's par- partially i'm sure 
growing up with social media being as dominant, if not more dominant than narrative, you know, traditional narrative forms of TV and film. The flip side of it is, you know, this frenzied attempt to break out on YouTube now that it's quite lucrative to do so. So you've got this kind of ongoing global uh, semi-frenzied talent show going on 24-7 with people doing anything they can to get your attention. Uh, but my question is, well, what is it about, you call, um, Justin, you call Logan a privileged dick, which is just a great description. And there's something about that persona, right? There's something about being annoying on YouTube that is a magnet, eyeball magnet, and works. And I wonder if we can, yeah. If I wonder if we can get at why. So I, I think one way to perhaps understand this is to, you know, first off, to presume that the audience for these YouTube videos uh, made by, you know, privileged dicks who uh, have made a career out of being annoying. The audience for these is children, um, people 18 or under. Certainly Logan Paul's audience is you know, very, very young. And you know this because whenever he goes out into the world and he films himself, he is beset by um, children who go up to him who are just over the moon to see him. And I think children feel, you know, basically disempowered often in their own lives. And I think they really sort of respond to and enjoy seeing someone who gets away with everything that they themselves are unable to get away with. And I think Logan Paul is lives the fantasy life that a lot of kids would like to live uh, themselves. He spends his time tweaking authority figures, um, he spends his time, you know, doing whatever comes to his mind, you know, be it going to a breakfast buffet in a hotel and just grabbing an entire loaf of bread and a full honeycomb off, coughing over everything, um, being incredibly annoying to everyone he encounters, and he never gets in trouble for it. Um, and he does it with the whole sort of Bugs Bunny, and I a stinker um, sort of attitude that is, you know, it's sort of exciting to see someone be, you know, completely um, frustrating and annoying to authority figures and not get in trouble. I mean, the difference is when, you know, Bugs Bunny is annoying in a cartoon, it's a cartoon, right? Logan Paul is actually being annoying out there in the real world. And for me, as an adult, I found it very hard to um, separate my sort of basic sort of enjoyment of sort of the annoying guy, you know, breaking rules with my knowledge that he's actually inconveniencing a lot of, you know, actual people out there. And by making these videos, you know, half the people he comes into contact with are going home that day and saying, man, <laughs> you know, I ran into this huge jerk today and uh, it really sort of like ruined my day. Logan Paul monetizes ruining other people's days. And, <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, there's power to that. And I think there's an appeal to that for people, you know, kids who know that if they ruin someone's day, they're going to get in trouble for it. But they can at least watch Logan Paul do it and get away scot-free. All right. Well, Justin, it sounds like we're going to be checking in with you more often going forward, which would be great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Yeah, it's always fun. Thank you all for having me. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. So last night when I was online muttering imprecations about the White House Correspondents Association and basically giving a more obscene version of the rant I just gave about it in our segment, I also came across this epic, epic thread by a, a guy I follow named Kevin Cruz. He's a historian. He's a professor at Princeton. And he's always someone who's good to read on sort of historical context for um, political developments in our time. And uh, partly in response to Kanye West, but also just in general to this very frequently heard canard that I think Kanye made some observation about in his one of his rants last week about how the Republicans are the party of Lincoln, right? And how at the beginning of the 20th century, the Democrats were the party of segregation and of the Klan. This is kind of a truism that you hear all the time and that can be orchestrated and manipulated in all kinds of ways to frame arguments, right? Um, And I was sort of aware, of course, that obviously the Republicans that were Lincoln's party are not the same as the Republicans now and that something has happened in between to make the name Republican mean something different. But Kevin Cruz has this (laughs) Iliad put together with Odyssey length the thread on Twitter about how that transformation (laughs) actually happened. (laughs) Um, It has, however, been rolled up into a blog post, which is the thing that I'll link you to. So you don't actually have to scroll through this endless thread. So it reads more like an essay, but with really interesting uh, clips as well. He went back and found all kinds of contemporary newspaper stories and things like that. But he essentially goes back and traces from the beginning of the 20th century how the two parties switched positions on civil rights and that it wasn't just a question of you know, the name of the party changing, like the Whigs or something. He actually talks about specific defections and, you know, what effect that had on the party, et cetera. It's, it's completely fascinating and beautifully documented and helped me actually understand something that I used to just sort of um, shake fists at people who were misunderstanding without fully really understanding it myself. So, again, it's Kevin Cruz, who I also recommend just following because he's a smart, interesting guy. K-R-U-S-E, not like Tom Cruise or Ted Cruz, on the switching of the Democrats and Republicans on the on the issue of civil rights. We'll link to the uh, to the rolled together essay version, not the thread. Julia, what do you got? I would like to endorse a book in which you, Steve Metcalf, are thanked in the acknowledgments. I'm a big acknowledgments reader. Are you guys acknowledgments <laughs> readers? Oh yeah, I'm actually I'm really excited about writing my acknowledgments. It seems like one of the funnest parts of writing a book. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I never want to write a book, but I should just write some acknowledgments for like just life. I just finally read. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran, who's been a sometime guest on this show and, in fact, I think came on to discuss an excerpt of this book with you guys, although not, I believe, with me, about the Osage Indian murders. And uh, we've had David Gran on the show. He's one of the most marvelous reporters and storytellers working in journalism today. And this book just tells an incredible, incredible horrific story from American history that I didn't know anything about and uh, does so with so much more specificity and moral clarity than certain Netflix documentaries we have recently discussed. He describes a set of murders uh, perpetrated against the Osage Indian tribe who, through a set of canny maneuvering Uh, by early leaders um, preserved the land rights to mineral deposits underneath the territory where they were resettled in Oklahoma. And when significant amounts of oil uh, were found there, briefly became quite rich, uh, quite wealthy as a community. And there was much contemporaneous coverage of the wealth of the Osage Indians and the sort of luxurious Indian enclave. 
Um, and then many of the Indians began to be murdered. And it tells the story of these murders, of the dawn of the FBI, a sort of national investigative force needed to be brought in to solve these crimes because uh, the law enforcement forces were corrupt and in cahoots with the killers. And the story just keeps expanding out and becoming more and more awful and horrifying. Um, it put me in mind we're about a year on from our trip to Australia. And also last year we uh, did a show in Toronto. And in both of these places, the custom at a couple of the event spaces we spoke at was to pay homage to the tribes, that the indigenous tribes that had initially inhabited the place where the venue was. And it was just kind of totally customary at the Sydney Book Festival in Melbourne and in Toronto to to briefly mention the tribe that had inhabited the place before colonizers arrived. And reading this book just reminded me how backward we are in this country about thinking about the primal sin of European encounters with the indigenous people here. And we are increasingly thinking about the other gigantic primal sin of this nation and thinking through um, our history with slavery and, you know, the way in which that shapes all of our politics today. But that that story is at least much more visible in our present moment than these this other set of stories, which are just so under-discussed, under-explored. Um, and having someone with the skill of David Grant take you through one incredibly dire episode um, is really worth your time. Uh, well, the other night, a friend of mine put on some music. I loved it instantly, but then mistakenly identified it as uh, John Coltrane's Love Supreme. It wasn't. It was It was even trippier, more ethereal. And it was Alice Coltrane, his wife, who is a harpist, a pianist, a band leader, a composer, uh, and a genius in her own right. I uh, criminally did not know her music well. I've been listening to it since. It's freaking amazing. She worked with, in addition to working with Coltrane, she worked with tons of amazing musicians, um, Elvin Jones, Ron Carter, Archie Shep, uh, and just act as a band leader, band leader and composer just made a ton of it's it's if you love Love Supreme, you'll love it. It's I think even more cosmic and out there maybe than Love Supreme is, but it's just masterful. I mean, I, the, I've been listening to a compilation called Astral Meditations, the music of Alice Coltrane. Check it out. If you're a fan, I want to hear from you. I'm just getting to know this music and uh, totally love it. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. Find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us, culturefest at slate.com, or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and uh, Julia Turner, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon.